0: Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design.
1: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 465. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective.
0: Here's your host,
1: Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 465. You're listening to. My guest today is Grammy winning mastering engineer Chris Athens, who's worked on projects for Coldplay, Blink 182, Coheed and Cambria, Drake, Rick Ross, Beastie Boys. Huge list, major list. And we're going to get into the usual working class audio discussion with Chris and go down the path, follow the journey, see where it leads us and I think you're going to enjoy it. Chris Athens coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's make sure we're saving for retirement. I know, not a fun topic. And the answer that I'm sure a lot of you will have is pretty much the same answer I'm going to have, which is retire. I'm never going to retire. Well, here's the thing. You just never know if that's really going to be true or not. You could say it now and you could say it as you're in your invincible 20s or your questionable 30s or your, oh shit, on turning 40 time period. But I can tell you that there's going to come a time and maybe it won't hit you until you're in your 50s where you realize, you know what? I don't have shit saved. I've got all this audio gear and I've done all these sessions and I've spent all the money. So... That's not a good position to be in. So let's keep it short and sweet here. Look, I'm not a financial genius. My recommendation to you is going to be pretty simple. If you're not a financial genius and you need to start doing something rather than, you know, waiting to find the perfect solution and waiting five years and doing nothing, just for now, start with sign yourself up for a Betterment Robo retirement account. You can sign up for as a as a freelancer. You can sign up for a, a SEP account. That's a self-employed program or something like that. See, I'm not a financial genius. Or you can sign up for a solo 401k. You can do that at uh, you could do that at Vanguard if you want. You could do that. Uh, I think you could do that at Betterment. The Betterment thing is interesting because you just put the money in and you could set it up to auto to auto deposit out of your checking account once a month, twice a month, once a week, whatever you want. The whole point is, is the sooner you put that money in, the sooner you're gonna start saving up. And if you are in your 20s or your 30s, fantastic. If you're in your 40s or 50s, it should be kind of a four alarm fire for you. And you should be putting some money away every single month. And hey, you know what? If you find that you're not gonna retire, No problem, but you've got that money there and you can draw off of it in your later years. And you never know what's gonna happen, you know? You might lose your hearing, you might lose a limb, uh, you might lose the will to wanna even do this. So better to have uh, a backup strategy for your money than not, right? This is not the only financial advice you should get. You should ask a friend. Maybe you've got an old friend who is really good at money and just ask them what they think. But the thing you should not do is sit around and wait to find the perfect solution because if you wait and you do not act, you will not save any money. So put that money away, get it in a solo 401k or a SEP account and get yourself saving. If you are in your 50s and you haven't saved a cent, you need to get on the ball now, like serious four alarm fire, five alarm fire for that matter. You need to be saving a tremendous amount Just save your money, friends. Get ready for the future. Stop fucking around, right? Quit talking about it. Just do it. Invest now. If you do nothing, invest in your future in a retirement account of some sort. I'll put a link in the show notes to Betterment if you want to go for that. Uh, Also put a link to Vanguard if you want to check that out. The Betterment thing is super simple. Vanguard might take a little more research, but uh, either way, investigate before you make a move, but just... Make a move, is the story at the end of the day. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Chris Athens, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you. It's nice to be with you.
1: Glad you're here. We met originally a few years ago. I was interviewing Vance Powell again, and you were in the room as I was interviewing him. And then we went to a burger joint afterwards. And then we went swimming at his place and you weren't feeling too well. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Sick as a Um, dog. But then we both caught a ride to the airport and then I haven't seen you since. Let's start with, where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in the suburbs just outside of New York City, about 25 minutes without traffic. Place called Dyack. It's an old river town just across the Hudson River from Westchester. It was a nice place to grow up.
1: Did you uh, have brothers or sisters growing up?
0: I have one brother from my parents and a couple of step-siblings from my stepdad.
1: Did music play a part of your upbringing?
0: Absolutely. My parents really enjoyed music. My father was a musician at one point when he was very young, drummer. And, uh, they had a decent record collection and of course that was back in the stone age before the internet and when video games were things like pong and when you were a kid, you either spent time outside or listening to music. And that's what I did. I mean, I went outside occasionally. Once in a while. Yeah, once in a while. But I I listen to music all the time, and the very first record that I became obsessed with I stole from my parents' record collection. It was Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder.
1: What about playing an instrument?
0: Yeah, I started playing guitar when I was 14. I've always been an avid, yet fairly shitty guitarist, but I enjoy playing several instruments very badly. So I, I play... Guitar, bass, and keyboards, and I'm um, bad at all of them, but I enjoy it. Were you in school band at all? Oh, no, no, uh, school and I didn't mix well. I wasn't a joiner back then was more of a solo guy. I didn't do any of that stuff. I, I actually dropped out of high school when I was 16. I made music with friends. My best friend was an incredible drummer. He played a couple of instruments as well. And we got into recording ourselves as a duo. We played in bands and stuff like that, and didn't really like the band format very much, the politics. And he and I had similar weird tastes in the music. And that was right around the dawn of the cassette, multitrack mm-hmm. and early MIDI devices. And we started delving into that stuff, the early like Alesis eight track MIDI recorders. And eventually we got to the point where we were using like eight and 16 track reel to reels and stuff like that. We built a little studio and we made a bunch of, I call it like primitive electronic music. And that was kind of what I was into at the time for quite a few years. That was my first experience with the recording stuff.
1: Where did you all have a studio set up?
0: My buddy that I made music with had a barn Hmm. behind his house and we set up a studio in his barn and I, I didn't have any analog stuff, but I had a, a keyboard rig in my bedroom. Between those two things, we, we got a lot of recording done.
1: Did you have visions of being a musician? an artist in any respect?
0: I had fantasies of it. Sure. It took me a while to get into the music engineering thing as a kind of transition from being a musician, but building the studio and getting into that technology and those techniques were a slow awakening of that kind of like, oh, I want to make records. And basically what happened was I went from being a musician who worked jobs and I eventually was running a musical instrument store in the town that I grew up in and, and got sick of that and was looking for a way to get into engineering stuff. I wanted to be a rich and famous mix engineer. And I eventually got a job at Sony studios in New York city. I took a job in the music library, the tape library. Mm -hmm of sony music studios because they wouldn't hire me as an engineer because i had zero professional experience or education basically when i got there i discovered mastering because i was delivering tapes to the mastering engineers and over time it piqued my curiosity i didn't even know what it was when i started working at sony but over time it piqued my curiosity and I became friends with a couple of the mastering engineers at Sony and then it just kind of clicked. I was like, I want to do that. Hmm. I started spending a lot of time with them, those people who became my mentors at Sony. You know, my greatest talent early on was the ability to shut my mouth and just sit there. And... I was friendly enough with these people who became my mentors that they let me hang out in their sessions. And I learned a lot just by observing. Then after a while, they started coaching me. They would like let me sit in the chair and twiddle the knobs. And my friend, Mark Wilder, who was one of my biggest mentors at Sony, would start doing stuff like giving me assignments. He taught me how to use an analog tape deck and how to cut analog tape tape and make edits and things like that. And he would hand me a tape on a Friday. I had access to the studios over the weekend. And he would say, When I come in on Monday, I want you to play me three edits of this song. And so I would practice and stuff like that. And then he would make me listen to converter shootouts and all this kind of tweaky stuff and and test me on it. Which I got a huge kick out of. So Over the course of time, I was a tape librarian at Sony for about three and a half years. And over the course of that time, I learned a lot from hanging out with these guys.
1: I may be incorrect about this, but it's my memory that in the, let's just say the 60s, I believe that when they were bringing people up at Abbey Road, I think they would start them in the library, take them through mastering, and they would work them in reverse, so that they understood the complete flow.
0: What a great idea.
1: I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but I seem to have a memory of that talking to somebody.
0: Well, it's funny because when I started there, I took the job in the library to get my foot in the door because I couldn't listen if people play a bad version of Enter Sandman or Stairway to Heaven at the store I was working at anymore. Because when I first went to Sony and applied for a job, they wouldn't give me one, They offered me the job in the tape library and I turned them down thinking, I want to be an engineer. I don't want to be a tape librarian. And I went back to my store and a few months later, I was just like, get me the hell out of here. And I, I bugged them until they gave me another position opened in the tape library as a librarian. And they gave me that gig. And I figured I would get my foot in the door and work my way up and at my first studio meeting with the rest of the crew, I was talking to one of the other engineers, mastering engineers. And she said, half jokingly, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a mastering engineer. And she said, oh, you can't do that. You're in the wrong division of the company. Like if you want to be a mastering engineer, you got to start in the cassette room and you're in the tape library. And I went home that night was just. Totally crestfallen and like depressed, like, what have I done? You know, I screwed up and now I'm stuck in the tape library and whatever. But the next morning I woke up and I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to be the first one that becomes a mastering engineer at a tape library. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Well, it took three and a half years and me threatening to quit multiple times, but they eventually gave me a job doing tape copies on the night shift. And that was my entry into the business.
1: Now. I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening that would say, oh man, I, I, you know, that would be such a, not a great position to have, but I would argue, and I, and I'm curious if you would agree that, especially at that time with analog tape, you could see how organization of tapes, labeling of media, just this, that whole protocol worked. Would that be accurate?
0: Yeah. I mean, at the time it was frustrating. But it was a very interesting way to, talking about backing into something or learning in reverse, it was a very interesting way to learn engineering from sort of the end product back. And the tape library at Sony was amazing. It was vast. It had hundreds of thousands of tapes of like, the most amazing records from Columbia records through the whole 20th century. And there was a room specifically devoted to lacquers, master lacquers, like Hmm. the original stuff and every kind of music from big band to jazz to that's actually a really interesting to me anyway, part of my formative years When I finally got into engineering, I was doing a lot of reissue work because that's what Sony was doing at the time. CDs just became ubiquitous and they were taking their whole catalog, basically, and reissuing it for CD. And I was part of that wave. And as a result, I got to do every genre. Really important stuff, too, like interesting stuff, like everything from, like, Ted Nugent to Miles Davis, you know, like all this crazy stuff. Country music and Willie Nelson and George Jones and all of this kind of classic stuff that Columbia had put out, for instance. So I, I got a really wide exposure to a pretty vast array of genres and styles and sounds. Also, it was kind of like the cheat code for learning mastering because. When you do reissue work, it's not just kind of all completely made up from scratch. You have a historical record, so to speak, of what the original project sounded like. For instance, when I was doing reissues, I would compare my work to the albums or to the original master tapes, and I was able to really analyze whether or not I was making a positive improvement on the sound of the record because when you do new release stuff it's a little bit more freeform like there's not something to compare it to it's not a pre-existing thing that was approved by the artist and the label and had success in the marketplace and all of these things so doing reissue work for a number of reasons including that one I feel like was a great way to learn the craft of doing mastering. So, you know, I'm grateful for that, that I ended up having to do that. I slowly transitioned into doing new release stuff almost exclusively, not quite. I still occasionally do reissue stuff.
1: And I'm curious why mastering kind of superseded your original intention of being a mixing engineer.
0: I'm not really sure. I think I did it because it was my first opportunity to engineer. If somebody had said to me, the guys running the studio had said, okay, we're going to stick you in the mix rooms and you're going to be a mix assistant. I probably would have done it and my path would have been different, but the first chance to move into engineering that I got was the mastering department. So I just did it. And once I started doing it, it just became my thing. It became my fascination and, and. I could just kind of visualize myself doing it. So I pursued it pretty hard.
1: Do you think your personality, your temperament, the aspects of you lined up with the world of mastering?
0: Yeah, I think so for a number of reasons. I I like a very wide variety of music and I also have a short attention span. So, I can work on a record for a day and move on to another record, totally different, the next day. And that's not usually the case being a mix engineer or a recording engineer. Sometimes those projects aren't really long, but they can go on for weeks and months and things like that. I actually still enjoy mixing. It's a hobby, though. It's not really what I do. Yeah, I think that I found kind of the right niche for my personality and my particular skill set, which of course was developed through a lot of practice. Yeah, I could have done mixing and been happy doing that. I just like making records. Yeah. But I think mastering, I kind of resonated with the whole thing.
1: Were you being paid well enough to survive? At that early stage at Sony, whether in the tape library or moving up through mastering?
0: Well, in the tape library, it was tough because I was living in New York City. But it was okay. I was barely getting by when I was in the tape library. And I got a little bump up when I became an engineer. But after about three or four years being an engineer at Sony, I got a job at Sterling. Sterling Sound. And that, that came about because one of the ladies who booked us at Sony went over to Sterling. She had a job there. She called me up one day and said, Do you want to be Tom Coyne's assistant? And I said, Hell yes. And so they hired me over there. And the funny thing was, I went from being a mastering engineer at Sony to an assistant at Sterling, but they paid me more money to do it. <laughs> like I got a big raise becoming a assistant at Sterling. So in some respects, it was a a risk and a step back, but I knew that it would mean a lot more opportunity to learn and to grow being at Sterling, because Sterling was the place to be. That's where Ted Jensen and George Marino and Greg Calby were. I mean, these were the head and are the heavy hitters in the industry. And I wanted to be a heavy hitter, so that's where I wanted to be.
1: From your perspective and your experience, could you explain why they they are categorized as heavy hitters? What makes them heavy hitters in your mind? Well, it's more than
0: one thing, but I would say that part of it has to do with vast experience and discography. The big guys at Sterling, by and large, started really young. And they were kind of the first wave of like really prominent mastering engineers. Guys like Bob Ludwig and Bernie Grundman and Doug Sachs kind of invented it. custom mastering. Before mm-hmm. that, it was just guys in lab coats whose job it was to transfer tapes to vinyl to lacquer masters. They were cutting guys, basically. And Doug and Bernie and Bob Ludwig were kind of the first guys to stick a compressor and an EQ in between the tape deck and the lathe and make tweaks and make improvements on the master as it was being cut or mastered. And they turned it into, created the career, the position. And the guys at Sterling, Ted, I think he started at Sterling when he was 23 and Greg was pretty young and George and those guys. The thing about Sterling was at the time, most music went through about 10 or 15 people in the world. Like most music that was being mastered was being mastered at Sony. Sorry. Yeah. A little bit at Sony Sterling, the hit factory, Bernie Grunman, Doug Sachs, a few people in California. A few people in New York, a few people in London, and that's it. I mean, yeah, some regional stuff got mastered in other places, but even the Japanese and the French and the Italians used to send the vast majority of their big, important records through everything ran through New York. Mm -hmm. So those guys were doing everything. They were doing all the huge stuff and. Some of it was just sort of this early advantage that they had by being, you know, and Bob Ludwig, I mean, he was in New York too at the time. In fact, I think he started at Sterling before he went to Master Disc.
1: Would you also say that those guys were on the forefront of digital technology as converters were sure. being developed and making CDs, obviously?
0: There was all kinds of little little things that they were very, Progressive about that kind of stuff. They always had the best gear and the best rooms and other little advantages. I mean, eventually they hired Chris Muth to be the head tech. And when Chris was the head tech, he was doing really amazing stuff like building consoles. And before Chris, consoles were usually either custom made by an in-house tech guy or, you know, an analog console from Neve, like two channel console. And they were, they were good, but like Chris's stuff was the next step in quality. And so the guys at Sterling were the first people to get Chris Muth consoles. He uh. built them at first exclusively. I think maybe Leon Zerbos had one at absolute, but he built them pretty much exclusively for Sterling.
1: If I'm correct, uh, in fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I am correct. For the listeners, if they go back to WCA number 454 with Jeff Powell, in that episode, Jeff had just blown his cutter head on his lathe, and he was talking about Chris Muth helping him out in getting him back up and running because Chris Muth is the guy to go to. So here his name is coming up again, but at a far earlier time historically in the world of mastering.
0: Well. I mean, Chris is a genius. He is really honestly a genius. I mean, certainly the best tech I've ever met. I've met quite a few great gear designer. And he did a lot of custom things that we had at Sterling that were just not available to anybody else at the time. All kinds of tricky shit His consoles. He would fix and maintain the lathes so they were operating as well or better than any lathes in the business and with the digital technology i think he had an early black box that hid the overlevels of umatic tapes because we used to record the masters to three-quarter inch tape three-quarter inch digital tape and that was what we sent to the plants for replication those tapes had to be analyzed i forget what it's called because it was so long ago but they had to be analyzed by a machine that would print out the faults that happened on the tape. If there were like over levels or dropouts, things like that. And I'm pretty sure Chris invented a black box that would hide the over level. So you could get a hotter master without being rejected from the plant. So early on, everybody was like, how the fuck are these people doing this? Right. How are they getting their. Master so loud, that was one of the ways.
1: And I want to highlight the point that what you're talking about at this time period really is the epitome of regional sounds. Probably, yeah, it was back in the day, I think, when we still had regional DJs and regional studios and sounds, whereas today we're all essentially using most of the same shit. Absolutely. wise And it's all been kind of, I'm, I'm not saying... The music is ne- isn't necessarily homogenized per se, although some would argue that. However, <laughs> but the gear, the gear has been homogenized compared to back then where it was like Sterling had a custom thing. I'm sure yeah. Bernie and Bob did as well.
0: Doug Sachs, most of those guys built their own shit and now it's manufactured. And it's interesting because the so-called democratization of the business technology-wise has opened the door to many, many people and revealed some people who have a lot of talent. You know, when I started, this was kind of at the end of the golden age of studios. And it was very different back then. Now you can buy a few hundred dollars worth of plugins and a computer and you're a mastering engineer if you want to be. And if you have talent, you could make something out of it. You could do good work with that. When I started, it was still kind of the era of like, it takes a million dollars to do this, to have a mastering or a legit one. Because back then, if you were a mastering engineer, you had to have a lathe. And in mm-hmm. 1979 money, a lathe was a quarter of a million dollars. So it was an enormous investment. To become a master engineer and was kind of like becoming a doctor. Like you had to go through the apprenticeship phase and you had to spend a ton of money to build a studio or to, yeah, the way I did it. And like most people did, it was I got a job at a studio and worked my way up, but you can start from the end. Now you can just buy the technology and and it's interesting because we're all using the same shit now. You know, like you said, like everybody uses the same limiter and digital EQs and stuff I do. I mean, I still, I have lots of analog stuff and all that, but I mean, I could just use digital tools and you don't have to invest anything in that. So
1: what I'm curious about is, so back to the story of going to Sterling, you were assisting. How long were you there? And was there a progression of growing through the ranks or did you leave before that and and move on before that happened?
0: No, I absolutely grew through the ranks. I had the very good fortune of working for Tom Coyne. And Tom at the time was probably the busiest mastering engineer in the world. He had just hit this stride where he was doing really classic records. First of all, at that time, New York was where it was at for, like, hip-hop and R&B. And Tom was doing that stuff, Tribe Called Quest and stuff for Wu-Tang and all the stuff. But he was also doing pop music, Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, and Sync. Jive Records would send him basically everything. And at that time, Jive was huge. And when I signed up with Tom, basically what happened was... He was so busy that he started offloading stuff he didn't want to do to me. Once I gained his confidence, because he would test me too. He basically would be like, here, I'm trying to get this record. I'm doing a shootout. You do it. And I would do it. And we got a bunch of those records. So he was like, okay, you're all right. And he would start giving me clients he didn't feel like dealing with, or he was too busy to work with. And he was very generous in that way. Like we had a, a good kind of working scenario. He w- had enough confidence in me that he, f- I could do stuff with him and for him that he felt would sound good. And he would occasionally even ask me, you know, what do you think of this? So we worked together on a lot of things. And then as he got increasingly busy, he would literally like, I've been in sessions with him where he would say to his client, you should use this guy. He's better than me. And I'd be like, shit, but the client would be like, really? And some of them took him up on it. So, you know, I ended up doing a lot of high profile stuff because Tom handed it off to me. We worked like that for a while. And then eventually I got on a roll of my own. As it happens when you do stuff that's reasonably well-received. You start getting calls, and I also worked really hard at Sterling because I had this thing that started at Sony. I always felt like I came to the game late because I started at Sony when I was 27, and I didn't get out of the library until I was 30. And everybody I knew, even my mentors, who were just about my age, maybe a couple of years older, had 10 years of experience on Sony was like the last of the big union shops in New York. And because it was a union studio, there was seniority. And Mm. because there was seniority, the likelihood of me getting my own room at Sony was very small. And I had to outwork everybody or this is how I felt. I had to outwork everybody in order to changed that scenario. I didn't want to wait for 15 years for other people to start retiring for me to get my own room at Sony. So the only leverage that I had in that regard was outworking people. And that's what I did. I worked like my hair was on fire, basically, as they say, never said no to anything gig wise. That's me in the middle of the night doing something for free at three o'clock in the morning for the guys who were assistants in the mix rooms and shit like that. And that eventually turned into something. But when I went to Sterling, a similar thing happened in that Sterling was building, was going from the old Sterling to the new one in the meatpacking district in Manhattan. They were building a brand new, like state of the art studio when I joined. So there were going to be only so many rooms in the studio. So. My goal was to have my own room at Sterling. And in order to do that, I had to prove myself there before we closed down the old Sterling and moved to the new one. And in fact, there were other assistants that were working at Sterling who wanted their own room. And so I always felt like I had to outwork everybody so that I could prove myself. So I would be one of the guys that got a room at Sterling. And fortunately for me, that's what happened. But, you know, I had bust ass the whole time.
1: And Tom had confidence in you. You had Tom backing you and Tom's endorsement, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I did. Also, I made them a lot of money. Like (laughs) that's when I started at Sterling, I was Tom's assistant and I was already making them money from the get-go because my clients that knew me from Sony Followed me at Sterling. I mean, when I got the job, when I got interviewed, it was funny because Tom really wanted somebody experienced to be his assistant, which is kind of a, it's a narrow niche because you don't want somebody too experienced because they don't want to be an assistant, but you don't want somebody too green because you have to spend a lot of time turning them into an engineer. And when I was interviewing with Tom. He said to me, have you ever done any hip hop sessions? And I said, yeah, all the time. And he asked me, you ever do any attendance sessions? And I said, sure. And he said, how many people showed up? And I laughed and I said, You're usually between two and 15. And he thought that was hysterical because he knew I had done hip hop sessions at that point. He was like, oh, okay. I get it. Yeah. We're good. You can, you can work for me anyway. I worked my ass off at Sterling and I did get the room. Part of the progression was being Tom's assistant, being fired as Tom's assistant, and then hired as a mastering engineer in the same moment. (laughs) And when I first started as a mastering engineer at Sterling, they let me work in Tom's room around his schedule. So I worked at night and I worked on the weekends and didn't sleep much. But eventually I got a room at the old Sterling just before we moved to the new one. That was like the first level of, you know, I got to prove myself. And when I worked in my first room at Sterling, I made them even more money. And they were like, okay, you can have a room at the new Sterling. So I got one of the last rooms there, maybe the last room there. Then spent 13 years in it.
1: They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. What was the takeaway? And I know that we're encapsulating over a decade of time at Sterling. What is the takeaway that you to this day remember about Sterling, your time there? That's a good question. And that could be observations about yourself or things you learned from others. Well, I'll tell you one thing.
0: I learned a lot more from Tom than I thought I did. Because I've noticed in the last few years that I have a lot of habits that he had. And I also learned that as much as I thought I was working my ass off at Sony, I wasn't. Because Tom showed me a different level. He was the guy that got there at 7 a.m. Because he he worked like he was hungry, you know? And this was a guy who was already kind of a legend and One of the big shots at at Sterling and he didn't need to do that, but he did. He loved it. And so he was kind of like my example of hard work. Also speed. Tom was very fast and I thought I was fast at working, but I wasn't. There was another gear and I was exposed to that from Tom. And it was funny too, because he was like a real ball breaker. Like I would be working for him and working on something for him in my own little production room next to his mastery room. And he would periodically check on me during the day, you know, he'd just come into the room and basically break my balls, you know, ask me what <laughs> I was doing and then why it was taking me so long and all this other shit, which was funny because you also had to be flawless because we were putting out the biggest records in the world at the time, and you couldn't fuck up. So your work had to be flawless and fast when you worked for Tom. So he helped me sort of get my game up with that. After 13 years, where did you transition to? When I was at Sterling, toward the end of my tenure, I fell in love with a gal from Texas, and we had a kid, and I was tired of, and part of it was just actual burnout because Mm I burned the candle at both ends for a long time and I was really burnt out and I was really in love and my wife wanted to move to Texas to be closer to her family and have another kid and you know we were living in a one-bedroom apartment in New York City with a little baby and a pit bull Mm -hmm. so the walls started closing in on me and I had always liked Austin, Texas. I had been there a few times for South by Southwest and thought it was a really cute town. You know, I wanted to make my wife happy. So we moved to Texas and, uh, I figured, you know, if the shit hits the fan and nothing works out, I could always teach like a mastering course at community college or some shit like that. And I came down here, I, I bought a bunch of gear. A lot of the stuff that I was using at Sterling, including my monitors, so that I'd have some familiarity with it when I left. And I came down here and set stuff up and just started working.
1: And when was that?
0: That was about 11 years ago.
1: (laughs) And you started working from home 11 years ago?
0: Yeah, and I still do. And I got busier than ever. Yeah. It's funny, too, because I'm like shit at marketing. I don't do any of that. I didn't even email my clients. When I left a lot of them called Sterling looking for me and the receptionist, God bless her was like, he's not here anymore. (laughs) And they would find me, but like, I didn't even send out like an email telling everybody I left, I just left. And fortunately for me, a bunch of people stuck with me and you know, I just kept working hard and things worked out. But I've been working from my house in Austin for just about 11 years.
1: Wow. I think that's amazing. And have you ever entertained the possibility of finding an external building? Yeah,
0: I'm going to build one. Fortunately, I have three acres, so I've got plenty of room. But the thing is, the funny thing about that is that I have been saving to do that because I'm not a big borrower. So, uh, I've been saving my money for like 11 years, but the work that I've done in my studio in the house has been pretty good. My clients have loved it and I'm busy as hell. So I really haven't had time to do it. Honestly, you know, I've had the capital for a while, but I haven't had time to sit down and like interview builders and just get started i've just been working
1: and you're gonna build this on your own property
0: yeah i am
1: okay so listeners if you go back to my rant on the episode with mike senior i go go off on this concept if you own the building if you own the property this is a great idea yeah
0: it's really an investment in yourself at that point It's difficult to imagine. Look, put it this way. Sterling Sound had to leave the nicest mastering studio in the world. Now, granted, they built some really nice mastering studios, one in Nashville and one in Edgewater, I think, New Jersey. But because they were leasing the top floor of a building in Manhattan, Basically, they lost that space to Google because Google could afford to pay much more per month than Sterling could. And in fact, the reason we got that, it was good timing, plus the guy who was the president of the company was a former real estate guy, and he made a great deal that lasted, I don't know what it was, more than a dozen years, maybe 15 years or something. He arranged some kind of long-term lease for this incredible space. But the neighborhood really blew up over that time. And the lease was coming up, and the guys at Sterling knew they couldn't afford to re-up. So they had to move their whole operation to Edgewater and Nashville. you know, And that's Sterling, of all things. You know, that's yeah. like this juggernaut of the mastering world and they had to do that. They had no choice. And I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to pay rent or yeah. lease something. You know, I have a friend here, Jerry Tubb, who's a mastering engineer in Austin. It's been here forever. I'm sure he doesn't regret it, but he had to move out his space or maybe he wanted to, I don't know, but he was leasing a commercial space and he did that successfully for years, but eventually he moved and I don't want to be in that position. You know, um, I'm sort of got the landing gear down as far as working is concerned. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to make big commitments to stuff I can't control for the rest of my career. And I don't want to commute. You know, my commute's 10 seconds and I like it that way.
1: Absolutely. So everything you're saying just reinforces this rant I had on episode 463 Make sure you're in control of the property if you're going to set up shop in a space. Otherwise, you're at the mercy of the landlord. That's right. And the lease. At the top, I mentioned, you know, we originally, um, we met in Nashville through Vance Pal. And I kind of hinted that you weren't feeling well at the the day w- that we met later on. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about health in general as audio professionals from your point of view, from your experience.
0: Oh, I certainly can. I think that it's a very underrated and underappreciated aspect of what we do. I don't have a lot of regrets in my career, but if I had it to do all over again, I would have been much more focused on balance than I was. I basically tried to work myself to death for 20 years and came close a few times but when i look back on the things i was doing the way i was living just as a couple of for instances i wasn't sleeping right or well or much and i was not getting any sunshine i was basically going to bed at three in the morning four in the morning every night and waking up the next day at late morning and then going back to work spending all my time inside. And I mean, even toward the end of my career, and I was already a big shot at this point, I was still sleeping on my couch four nights a week in my lounge. And, you know, of course my diet was crap. I was basically jacked up on coffee all day long. And then at midnight, I'd be like, shit, I'm fucking starving. And I'd order something like a cheeseburger or something from the diner and have it delivered, but I was just doing everything wrong. Sleep, diet, no exercise, all that kind of shit. Some of it was because back in the day I used to do attended sessions all the time, like most of us, by the way, I, I haven't done an attended session in 11 years. <laughs> well, I did one, I did one with Robert Glasper because I love the guy, but basically I don't have time for that shit. And. Oddly enough, I've only lost a couple of projects because I wouldn't do an attended session. Basically, I was not sleeping, not eating well, and just treating my body like trash. Back then, like sometimes attended sessions would get out of control. Like they'd go all night or start really late. I did a session with Erica Badu once that lasted 36 hours. And I had her whole band sleeping on in my lounge and we were just up all night. And that, that was the longest one, but that wasn't unusual, like being up <laughs> all night, literally all night and just not sleeping. And the thing is that when you're young and strong, you can kind of get away with it and I got away with it for a long time and eventually. It caught up to me and showed up in the form of like high blood pressure and I'm sure a lot of other stuff. And it it does eventually catch up to you. Also, I think being exhausted and kind of wringing yourself out like that does a lot of other stuff that's not good for you. Like it makes you grumpy, you know, which is not great when you have an attendance session and just everybody annoys you. Even if you're a nice person, like somebody asking for something during an attended session becomes a real imposition when you're exhausted. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think I compensated for that kind of feeling fairly well, cause I'm a fairly nice guy and get along with people pretty easily, but still there are things that I think I could have done a lot better. And health is one of those things. I think that you can probably be a better engineer if you don't stay up all night every day. Oh yeah. Like it messes with your decision-making and your ears, all that kind of stuff. So I think health is a lot more important than I gave it credit for. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to have a very beastly work ethic, but I took it to my own physical limits too many times. It just never occurred to me when i was young and bulletproof that i needed to sleep it really didn't i didn't care about that kind of stuff i just cared about doing the work yeah that kind of lack of balance as you get older catches up to you
1: and there's many layers here because your your lifestyle and your i guess your world view is different when you're young and in new york working at sterling and hustling and and it's It's really a vastly different experience than living in Texas, having kids, working out of your home at the time and place you deem appropriate. It's like they're two different worlds. I mean, it's, it's such a huge,
0: for me, life improvement. When I was working at Sterling, I lived like three blocks away and my commute was really short. But it was still long enough that if I was doing an important session and this, this happened very frequently, there would be one or two records or songs that were still being mixed. And I'd be in the studio finishing a record and it would be a very high pressure record, like we have to deliver this tomorrow. And it'd be like three o'clock in the morning. I'd be getting a delivery of a tape or somebody sending me a file. And these things, and it, it wouldn't be worth it for me to go home. It was not unusual for me to be done at seven or eight at night. And then at two in the morning, have to do two more songs to finish the record. So instead of going home, I just went into my client lounge and watched TV and waited. And I spent wow. so many hours waiting for people to show up or tapes to show up or files to be sent or even approvals to be made. I once got into a, I wouldn't call it a fight, but like a little tiff with Puffy. Because after a very long day of mastering, he called me at four o'clock in the morning. I was in the studio finishing the record and I was running off his CD ref, which was something we used to do in the stone age. And he called me. He was going to have one of the people who was in one of his runners, bring him the CD ref so he could listen to it. it was about 80 minutes of music. He called me and said, okay, my guy is going to bring me the CD, but I'm in Philadelphia and I need to listen to it and do approvals. And I'll call you if anything has to change. And the record needs to be on so-and-so's desk at 9 a.m. And I was like, do you think I'm just going to hang out here for the like not go home, like I'm done. Call me tomorrow. And if there are changes, I'll make them. And he got all freaked out. He's like, no, no, no. I need to listen to the record tonight and we need to finish this and that. And I was like, you're not gonna be fucking done. Like he was literally gonna approve the record, listening to it in his limo because he was starting a press tour. And I'm like, this is such bullshit. Then of course, I discovered one of the reasons why he was so successful because he realized that bullying me was not going to work. And instead he turned on the charm and I was like, I knew he was charming me, but it was working and I was like, okay, I'll just hang out. And I fell asleep on my couch in the, in the, my client lounge and woke up the next morning. And sure enough, I didn't hear from him until one in the afternoon. (laughs) So I was there for nothing all night or all morning, but you know, that kind of stuff happened all the time. And since I've been here and not doing attended sessions, I'm a lot more efficient than I was then, because here's the reason why I don't do attended sessions. The primary reason is I can switch between projects and put out fires throughout the day. If I have to back then, when I was doing attended sessions, I couldn't stop an attended session and be like, Hey guys, can you go hang out in my lounge while I do this other project for a few minutes? Cause they're freaking out and this needs to be delivered. Now you can't do that. So now I can switch between projects. If I have to stop what I'm doing. And like quickly do another thing and then go back to what I'm doing. It's no problem. I'm here by myself. I can do what I want. And also now I don't stay up late anymore. Like I used to, I used to work all night, all the time. And now the only people I work late nights for really are DJ Khaled and Drake. That's it. And even DJ Khaled, sometimes I'm like, when he calls me, I'm like, oh shit. I'll call him tomorrow, you know, because he'll call me really late at night. Right. Anyway, it's it's a much better life now, and I get more done.
1: Yeah, I would imagine so. And, I mean, you can pay more attention to your family and your health and your body and respond accordingly. I mean, I kind of hit a wall at, like, you know, worked in the morning or worked all out, you know, up until the afternoon yesterday. I went, I picked up the kids, and I got home, and I was just like, I got to just chill. So if I can sit on the couch and watch the fall of the house of Usher for a few episodes before I had to uh, make dinner.
0: Yeah, man, it's life changing. I recommend it to anybody. The thing about like progressing your career it's a tough thing. And this goes back to kind of the taking care of your health thing. It's really hard to balance these kind of necessities. Like on the one hand, when you're working on someone's record, if you're the mix engineer or the mastering engineer, it's a team sport and you're trying to help your clients kind of facilitate what they need. And often that's them under pressure, trying to deliver their projects through labels and it can be natural to fo- also a lot of artists like to work late or don't show up late until late or whatever. And it kind of creates a scenario where it's not unusual for you to be in a session for a really long time and really late and not be able to have a consistent time to go to sleep or be with your family. When you're very ambitious, it's difficult to manage those things, to like set limits on how late you're willing to work, how often, and those kinds of things. So it becomes hard to, to have good life work balance. And one of the great things that's happened to me since I moved and worked for myself is I I don't have a lot of those pressures. I mean, every once in a while I have a little bit of pressure from my client, but not that often. And now that I'm the boss, I don't have that pressure either. So working for myself has been a huge improvement in my life, but it might be a different scenario if I hadn't already been kind of successful before I came to work for myself and Mm. being in the music industry on the service end. And if you think about it, mixing and mastering or service end careers, it's more difficult to manage that before you have some level of success. I mean, things are changing of course, but when you start, you kind of, it behooves you to be somewhere where the action is, for instance. And that's not usually in your house, you know what I mean? Like being somewhere when you start out near a studio, things are changing a little bit now because there are way fewer high-end, large high-end studios that can hire assistants and that kind of stuff. But that's sort of a new wrinkle to the business that I don't really know much about. I mean, I get asked all the time about career stuff, like how to be successful in this business. And the truth is. I would not know how to do that now. I know exactly how to do that 25 years ago.
1: And you're just building off of a foundation you laid many years ago. A long
0: time ago. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Makes sense. I mean, I don't do any marketing and haven't ever. And I should, but, you know, I don't. And my entire business is based on the reputation I built at Sony and Sterling. I mean, obviously I've done new stuff since then that has gotten me repeat work and whatever and Grammys and shit like that, but it all came from the stuff, the foundation I laid back then.
1: Yeah. And you know, the beauty of working, doing unattended sessions is you don't have to maintain a building space to impress anybody. You don't have to alter your gear to satisfy anybody but yourself. It's all like, you're judged by the work and the communication skills. It's true. At this point.
0: It's 100% judged by the work. You know, when when I started working with Drake, for instance, I got that gig from word of mouth. Basically, Drake and his team were on Cash Money Records and so was DJ Khaled. And Drake's team, for whatever reason, reached out to DJ Khaled and said, who masters your records? And he was nice enough to say, oh, this is my guy. And then I got a call from them one day and they were like, do you want to do a shootout with the guy who was doing Drake stuff for his new single? And I happened to be in Galveston at a beach house that I rented on a rare vacation with my family. And I had my laptop and headphones with me because I had to do editing work and things like that. And they called me up and I'm like, shit, I'm not in my studio, but I thought about it and I was like, well, he's not my client. So what the hell I have nothing to lose. So I said, yeah, sure. I'll do a shootout for his new single. And they've been working with me ever since, but I did that, that song. At the beach house, sitting at the kitchen table on my laptop with my headphones, looking out the window, watching my wife and my little baby son play on the beach. And that's not something that would have happened back in the day with attended sessions because nobody cared what I was using. They only cared about what I sent them back and how it sounded.
1: And this this goes back once again to yet another rant of mine. No matter what your situation, always have a, a laptop-style home rig if you can. And if you, if you could go the laptop route and have a pair of headphones and travel light like this, opportunities come, and you can seize on those opportunities because it was, as I've also said, opportunities do not come when it's convenient for you. Yeah, that is a fact. So here you are. What are you going to say? I'm on vacation. You're not going to cut your vacation short with your wife. That would be bullshit, right? And what if you didn't get the gig? She'd be pissed. You'd be pissed. It 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 generates bad feelings all the way around. But you were prepared enough with a laptop to go. Sure, let's give this a shot.
0: Well, I had experience with it too because back in my Sterling days, I used to go to Florida to visit my mother every Christmas and. I was there with my mobile rig once. This is a fairly long time ago, but I had my mobile rig and I was down there and Khaled called me. It was like, I got a new single I need you to do. And I said, I'm on vacation, man. I'm not going to be back into the studio for like three weeks. I said, I have like a portable studio here at my mom's house, but I'm not going to be back to Sterling for a long time. And he said, man... I need that Athens sound. I don't care where you are. (laughs) I was like, okay. So I mastered his record and sent it back to him. He loved it and pretty sure it was a number one hit, Billboard number one. And (laughs) I got back to Sterling and I told them, I told my booking manager how many hours I worked and all that. And one of the owners of Sterling, I won't mention who, got really pissed at me. And he was like, you can't do that. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, like I'm servicing my client and the client asked me to do it and I did it and they loved it. And he said something to the effect of the studio is all we have. Like it's all about the studio. And in that moment I was like, well, I guess what? It's all about me. Like it's my ears, my brain, my taste. That's it. I don't need the studio. Now, I didn't want to leave the studio, and I loved my studio and all that, but I realized in that moment that it was the pilot, not the plane, and that his problem with it, which I totally understand, was that they had invested massive amounts of money, millions, in building this state-of-the-art studio, and they didn't need one of their shithead engineers doing it on a laptop in no room with headphones and by the way, having it go to number one on the billboard chart, like <laughs> none of that works for him. None of it, <laughs> you know? Oh, and I'm, I was like, you're still getting paid. We're doing all the billing through you. Like I didn't do anything except make my client happy and make a good sounding song that went to number one, but he had a real problem with it. And I could totally understand his position. And yet at the same time, I don't give a shit. Yeah. You know,
1: times they are a changing friend. It's it's <laughs> not
0: about the gear, dude. Sorry you yeah. spent $7 million building this facility. You know, I get it. It's great. And I loved the sound of my room. But the thing is, I discovered through that process that, like, I didn't need it.
1: And it comes down to, tell me if you agree, it comes down to your own personal choices. Like, whatever works gear-wise to help you help your client that's all that matters. Absolutely. I mean, you, your ears combine with the, the choice of tools, whether they be digital or analog, speakers or headphones, as long as you're servicing the client and doing the job, yeah.
0: I saw the writing on the wall before I left. Sterling, between the improvements in the digital tools and certain things that I did for myself, like one of the ways that I taught myself to use headphones, at first I, I poo-pooed that quite a bit like I I was really a snob like I had always worked in amazing rooms either at Sony or Sterling I wasn't one of those people that grew up in like a shitty room or whatever I've always been incredibly spoiled in that regard and always had the best tools because I didn't buy them. some big corporation or Sterling bought them set them up and did all that I just benefited from it but When I knew I wanted to move to Texas, what I did was I started training myself because I I realized even though I bought the same monitors I had been using for 10 years and all that to kind of minimize the shock of what my new room was going to sound like compared to my old room and all that, I bought a lot of the same gear, but I knew that building the room and tweaking the acoustics was going to take a long time and I didn't have that kind of time you know, I had Mm. to make money. I had to service my clients and I had to keep food on the table for my wife and my kid. So I had heard of a few mastering engineers that did a lot of their work in headphones. And I was like, that is bullshit. But I realized like, well, maybe I should try to figure this out. Yeah. So I got a really great headphone amplifier and really great headphones. What I did was I trained myself to use them and By that, I mean, I would start every record that I worked on in headphones, as long as I was unattended and I'd do the whole record. And then I would take my headphones off and listen in my room. And what happened was at first I was like, this is impossible. What I did sucks and I'd have to fix everything. But I did that for a year and a half and. By the end of the year and a half, I made no changes to anything I was doing in the headphones. So I'd master a record in my headphones and then take my headphones off and listen in my beautiful acoustically designed room with my tens of thousand dollars worth of speakers and amps. And I'd be like, okay, that's good. And there'd be no changes. So in doing that, the process became transparent to me. Like I stopped thinking about the headphones as being different than my monitors and whatever happens in your head, it's this kind of interpolation that happens when you listen and work on certain monitors for a while. That happened for me with the headphones, like it, it became second nature and it started to make sense. So that was very freeing because it allowed me to do the same quality work. Once I came down here, before I was able to fix up my room to be acoustically the way I wanted it, I was able to do the work. And the side benefit of that was that I could go anywhere and still do quality work, like literally.
1: Then you're starting to enter into the digital nomad type of lifestyle. I
0: haven't taken a vacation, honestly, that is more than two days long since I've been here. And that's because I always have my rig with, me, and -hmm. that started a long time ago. Like back in the day, Vance used to make fun of me because we went to the AAS show together in New York and we were sharing a hotel room and he went out one night. I didn't go with him. He came back and I'm sitting in the hotel room in my underwear on my laptop with my headphones working on a Busta Rhymes song. And he's like, what are you doing? And I told him, like, I'm mastering a record. What do you think I'm doing? He's made fun of me for that ever since. But it was mostly probably because I had my shirt off. But, <laughs> you know, I don't take vacations without my rig just in case I have to do something. Yeah. And I don't turn records down because I'm out of the studio anymore. So it's been a real advantage. But you have to do, I think, you have to do the work first. To get to that point where, like, yeah, you could make good sounding records on anything once you get used to it.
1: And I'll point for the audience there's an episode of Working Class Audio, uh, WCA number 372 with Glenn Schick. He talks a ton about this concept, which has become like that's his thing now. I know. Like, he just, he just works on headphones and he travels around and he's got a whole system in place. So, anyways, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Chris, we are at a ton. I will put in the show notes a link to your website. That's Chris Athens Masters. Let me make sure I got that right. Yes, ChrisAthensMasters.com. And people can go check your stuff out there. Holy mother of God, you've worked on a lot of stuff. It's amazing.
0: By the way, yeah, I have the world's shittiest website. <laughs> Basically, when I put it together, it looked like it was 10 years old. And that was 10 years ago. And I haven't changed any, speaking of not marketing yourself, I really need a new website, (laughs) but yeah, it's there. If anybody is really curious about my discography, they can just go on allmusic.com or I was
1: just on on this thing. Have you heard of this thing called muso.ai? I'm using it. I'm paying for it. Yeah. I'm totally yeah. like getting all my credits in line over there finally, because all music was such a colossal I pain in the ass to get together. Muso is
0: definitely better. I, I find Muso kind of funny because apparently according to them, everybody I know is in the top 1% of whatever they do.
1: Yeah. I'm not there.
0: If you're a mix engineer or a mastering engineer, but I do have like 7,000 credits. Oh, I know. On muso.ai, which
1: is funny because that's a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. But it's fascinating to see it build up over time and the analytics that they provide. I should get them on as a sponsor. You really should. <laughs> because I'm now talking about them all the time. But yeah, so I'll include a link to that, to your Muso link and to Chris Athens' masters. So if you want Chris to master anything for you, everybody out there, you can go and ring him up and, and see if he'll do that for you. But hey, man, I'm so glad we could finally make this happen. We've been working on this for a little bit and going back and forth over the last few years. So it's great to see you. It's great to talk with you. And um, I'll have to have you back. And I hope to run into you in person again.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. I think I'm going to go to uh, Nam. Great this I'll year. See you there. So if you're going to be there, let me know.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely going to be there. For awesome. Sure. All right, man. Well, you take care. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. Chris Athens here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. So three things. Head on over to your podcast aggregator, leave a five-star review, tell a friend. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne Marie Plow and the editing Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn or send me an email, Matt at WorkingClassaudio.com. And until next time, take care.